um, you could just say Tar Dr. Tara McCormack lecturer in international politics. Okay, and I'll, I guess I'll mess mention the uh, working group, right? I mean, not particularly. I mean, that that is like a whole issue. If you want to chat about it, I have it because it is really interesting. We haven't actually done any work. <laughs> <laughs> we have to keep that in. <laughs> but you know, it's a bunch of academics. Like we literally <laughs> who never who never work. <laughs> yeah. But we literally, it's sort of you been guys were on strike, right? <laughs> yeah, everyone's been on strike. Uh, you know, it's a typical thing. Like no one's kind of worked out yet. You know, I did a kind of overview of what's happened in Syria. Like you know, at some point we'll do um, we'll do a maybe a funding bid. There, nothing has come out of it, right? This is extra. I mean, seriously, you know, this is like the this is really mad. The Times wants to shut us down. We haven't done anything yet. <laughs> <laughs> preemptive, preemptive strike. Well, yeah, it is, it is exactly. So, I mean, if you want to talk about it, because it is actually quite mad. The, the main thing I was worried about, honestly, was that I was going to stop being invited on. So I've been doing lots of stuff on the Screeple case. You know, basically coming from an anti-war perspective. I think the whole, the time thing is just so blatant and so ridiculous. All publicity is good publicity. Yeah, just feed, oh, feed, feed, feed the media sensation machine. It's Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Very well, it's war. War it is. That's it, Chris. It's war. War has broken out. This is the war. That's it. Yes, it's war. This past Saturday, 14th of April, the Times of London went hard on some pro-war propaganda. Its front page headline article blurted out, Apologists for Assad working in British universities. This was accompanied by a two-page spread claiming that the academic working group on Syria, propaganda, and media was trying to shut down debate. In the very same edition, the Times even denounced the working group as Assad's useful idiots in its editorial column. So today we're happy to be joined by Dr. Tara McCormick, lecturer in international politics at the University of Leicester and part of said working group, to talk about the Times smears, Syrian war propaganda, and brinkmanship with Russia. All right, so we're very pleased to have Tara McCormick here with us, a newfound star, courtesy of the front page of The Times. Um, so, Tara, tell us a little bit about this Times hatchet job. Well, this is a really bizarre event. I mean, I couldn't believe it on Saturday, right, the day after Britain, America and France launch um, illegal airstrikes against Syria, you know, with no parliamentary authorization, very little democratic support, literally the day before the OPCW goes into Syria, the front page of the time, double page spread inside, the leader, the lead editorial is about a small bunch of academics who have set up a working group to look at specifically at kind of British media framing of, Syri of the Syrian conflict, and it's one of the conveners is Piers Robinson from Sheffield, who does work, who, you know, his recent big work was kind of on Iraq, how the media frames Iraq, he does a bit of stuff on humanitarian intervention, Chilcot, you know, like he's a really, he's a really interesting, good scholar. Um, yeah, so the front page of the Times, double page spread, and the leader. That's was, remarkable. It, it, it was absolutely 
astonishing. You know, you think, ah, and, and we haven't, just to repeat, we haven't done any work yet, <laughs> right? So, we're, so you've got this. And now you're not going to have to because you can just point at that front page and yeah. go see. You've already made well, your That's impact. right, yeah. You joke, but a couple of the working group are going to think about this in terms of an impact study. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, so it's so it's actually it's extraordinary, but I think it's so crude and just like so ridiculous that one of the interesting thing is things is that I it doesn't really seem to have had that much effect. So, for example, the next day, the Times had another article about me, and and what it seemed, what the article I didn't read it because I'm not going to pay. To read that nonsense. What the, the from what they tweeted, the article seemed to be about the fact that I had tweeted the serious strikes are against international law. I think like <laughs> what? This is an article of the Times. I mean, I'm laughing, but actually, it's quite serious. Yeah, you know, I mean, because yeah, sorry. It, I mean, it's it's bad enough that you know newspapers are spinning out articles on the basis of a tweet that someone did somewhere on Twitter. Um, sure. But the political I mean, is, context is even more striking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is like, you know, the, a kind of farcical, even stupider version of Corbyn's factory of hate, you know, which was done about three weeks ago when the Times like trawled through all these Facebook groups to find someone who'd made an unpleasant comment somewhere, nothing to do with Corbyn. I mean, the Times obviously is no longer a newspaper. Right. It does. It obviously doesn't do any kind of journalism. So I don't know what's going on there. Um, but the political context is actually quite serious. You know, this is the establishment newspaper, and it devoted four pages to try, basically, to try and shut down a bunch of academics. And the work, you know, what you could say about most of us is that we come from a sort of anti-intervention perspective. But, I mean, but it, does, it does show a certain desperation on their part, um, as you say, to attack a small group of academics, some of whom maybe didn't have a particularly large media profile or political profile before that. Um, but maybe you could paint a picture for us of what the broader media context has been around Syria over over the past couple of days and, and maybe further back if you want. Yeah, I mean, I think as ever, what we when uh, in these situations, we've seen this huge kind of, and I would say actually quite frightening um, kind of pro-war bent in the media. Um, it's and I think that people are a little bit worried about criticizing things because you know we've seen we've seen massive attacks say on Corbyn, who's you know like this kind of milk toast so, so mild. Hey, maybe we should wait. You know, let's ask the UN. You know, we're not talking radical. We're not talking revolution here. You see this really kind of intense drive in the media to um, justify attacking Syria. But what's also interesting is that this actually doesn't reflect, and we'll talk about if we want to talk about the demos later, but this doesn't actually reflect, I think, the general sentiment in the country. So there have been several polls done, you know, so very um, a minority of people support Syria, striking Syria, even if there are chemical weapons. So one thing that's really striking, I think, is that what's quite clear is that the media don't reflect broad public sentiment anymore. You know, and what 
in the kind of Westminster media bubble is portrayed as a kind of traitorous act, i.e. saying, hey, I know, let's not have a com you know confrontation with a nuclear armed power. That might not work out so well. You know, what's portrayed as a kind of traitorous act is for, mo is for most people just straightforward common sense. Yeah. You know, so, so I think that's been one thing that's really, really interesting that kind of total separation, you know, and I know, we, we, uh, you know, probably on your program, we'll talk, you know, people have talked about the Westminster bubble and the gap, you know, Peter Mayer's great work on the gap between the kind of politicians and the people. And I think this is another really interesting example yeah, indeed. of it. So I think the me I think the media has been, I mean, it's been disgraceful. You know, we're, we're talking pure, it's just pure propaganda, not even, you know, not kind of journalism, 101 like hey maybe if we bomb a chemical factory in the middle of damascus which it obviously wasn't that might not work out so well either i um, mean i just want to jump ask you a quick question yeah. um, i think this is a sort of captures what you've been saying quite well i've been wondering what does the media say in relation to the sort of uh, Iraq war debacle where there was uh, false information uh, exactly. treated as news yeah. by the media. Has it been something like Syria isn't Iraq? Is uh, the, We've learned our lessons from the past. This is different. I mean, how are they framing no. that? So, so this is a really good point, Mike. So I've been, I've done quite a bit of media on this. I've debated, um, well, first I was doing quite a lot of media on the Screeple case and I've deba debated a couple of politicians, obviously Tom Tugambat who is the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, and that's one of the points I've been making. You know, our, the British government's Chilcot report, right? and I think I dismissed that too much at the time. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, governments lie, you know, oh, big news. But actually, the Chilcot report is a really serious piece of work in which it's set out very, very clearly that the government's deliberately lied, you can't put it in any other way, in order to take the country to war, in what's like the biggest foreign policy disaster post-Cold War. So it's actually really, really serious. So I've been going around saying, yeah, hey, remember Chilcot, it's not like, our you know, this is mm. really a serious issue. The answer has been, no, no, well, yes, it's just been sort of, yeah, well, this, we, we, we know that, as if it, it's a sort of presentation that Chilcot is a kind of, a novel about the past rather than uh, a kind of warning about the present. And actually the key point that Chilcot made at the launch was, you know, we have to understand that at, particularly at times of conflict or war and tension, it's exactly then that we need to really debate, you know, question the government and push them. So the point of the Ch Chilcot's kind of point was this is something that we need to keep with us. But it's been totally ignored so anyone who any when you talk to it when you say it to him hey look about this you know just oh yes well that was then you know we have better intelligence now or some kind of nonsense but the media itself has managed incredibly <laughs> to almost totally ignore the iraq war and of course the libya war the libyan disaster because there's again you don't have to you don't have to go to Sputnik, you can just look at the government's mm. own publications, the Foreign Affairs Committee report on Libya, 2016, before the Foreign Affairs Committee was taken over by Tom Tugumat, who's like a real neocon guy, basically. You know, so you, ha you only have to look at this report, and it's basically Iraq Mark II. 
so just to paint more of a picture of the actual spread itself, and I think Tara talking about the previous, um, the trolling through the Facebook groups associated with Momentum and Corbyn looking for any evidence of um, anti-Semitism that could be used um, in their attack on Corbyn. It was, inter- I mean, it was interesting in a way because it was also very similar. It was cast as this um, scoop as this revelation of the secret network within British universities, the content of the journalism was all stuff that was entirely publicly available. Um, It was just stuff which was literally copied and pasted off academics' public profiles on university web pages. And then repeating the most kind of, you know, um, just repeating stuff which had been said, presented in this lurid light. And it strikes me, so the weak, you know, it was such a weekly poorly put together piece as well not even a good hatchet job yeah, yeah no, no, it strikes me that it. it's kind I'm of um a victim of a good hatchet job i mean <laughs> <laughs> it's a good quick question i mean i was gonna so what's striking to me was the you know the weakness of the kind of effort and it's really uh, unhinged in a way it goes to show i think the way in which the media itself has become unhinged by recent events a number of things which have um, entirely disoriented the media and made them so much more um, weak and kind of they lash out in response in this entirely irrational and cack-handed way which is always counterproductive and this is another one of those instances I think and I'm thinking specifically of things like um, like Brexit like the um, Corbyn's kind of multiple victories within the Labour Party that's also been deeply disorienting yeah. for the political and media establishment and this is another one of those instances where they're desperately trying to recreate the credibility of Britain as a as a kind of world power uh, with effective military forces. And I think this is why they're so desperate for war in Syria in a kind of very odd, you know, very odd way. They're desperate for war in Syria. Okay, so let's actually yeah. segue and try to tie this discussion about the media discourse about propaganda um, to what the government's arguments have been for intervention. I mean, to put it a little bit in a kind of crude dichotomy, has it tended more towards the liberal humanitarian intervention arguments or more the national interest sort of arguments? Because I think Theresa May has kind of hedged and, and put forward both sorts of argumentations. Yeah. There, is no, there is no argument. It's all over the place. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's about three different arguments all at once. Um, and we can see that as well, obviously, with... Trump where you know it's everything and I think that's probably true it's everything from prestige to Iran and Russia a signal to Russia to losing control over the Syrian process to the extent that you know there was some kind of Western control we see now that the Syrian kind of peace process and I mean that in inverted commas um, is basically now being run by Turkey Iran and Russia working together if you can if you can believe it but yep that's what's going on folks um so you know and they, those three are now basically working out what's going to happen after um so i think there's a whole there's a whole kind of bunch of reasons some are geopolitical you know for what it means today to use that phrase um you know and that's and then a lot is absolutely about uh, credibility and prestige. Macron today, I don't know if people have seen it, said the strikes were about the honour of the international community. You know, so there's all sorts of so things. Big words. Yeah, I mean, very <laughs> Jupiterian. 
you know, it's, it's he's, a, he's an honourable man. Clearly. An honourable man, yeah. But I mean, genuinely, in terms of the British case, yeah, it's just a, a spaghetti junction of random reasons: national interest, humanitarian, um, you know, international stability. That there's no, there is no one thing that's being pushed i guess and that's quite an interesting thing maybe to think about going back to the what's going on with the media it's not even like there's a straightforward argument it's literally we need to do this yeah. you know what i mean you can't there's no kind of at least i mean not at least i don't mean that in a good you know with the iraq um fiasco you know it's like this is we need this for our security uh, i think but if you if you look at the libya yeah. example um what I remember very much so is that the whole thing was framed out about Gaddafi uh, on the verge of committing genocide. We can't yeah. just sit silent and, at yeah, the sidelines. Was... And I mean, it, it's like uh, even though this Syrian war has been uh, awful, I think 500,000 people have been killed now and more people have been died of conventional weapons rather than chemical yeah. weapons. Sure. The, the, it's being framed as if like we can no longer sit at the sidelines, sort of like this discourse of impotence or sitting in the sidelines or doing nothing. Which... But there's another thing as well, because there's a lot of, I mean, a lot, you see these kind of responses on Twitter when someone makes an argument against the war and some kind of liberal interventionist comes in and, and says, well, we can't just sit by and do nothing, as yeah, if the yeah. West has been doing nothing in Syria for the yeah. past four yeah. years. I mean, the US has been intervening for the last four years to yeah. varying degrees. It's not as though Trump wasn't intervening before he sent the cruise missiles. They have troops on the ground there. Oh, no, but it's it's much more than... I mean, just on that topic, yeah, I guess one of the strongest reasons that has been most frequently made in the British media is the fact that it's chemical weapons and it's a quote-unquote red line. You know, and there's a, a very legitimate argument, I think, to be had, well, yeah, what, so it's better to be killed by barrel bombs. I mean, you know, that, so I think that's obviously, it, it, you know, reasonable... But it's not just that we've got troops on the ground. I mean, it's much more like we have been central players. Well, not so much the UK, much to our chagrin. We have been central players. You know, last year, you'll all know, like to great fanfare, Trump closed down the CIA billion dollar program for funding, quote unquote, rebels but they were islamist groups you know most of the money and the weapons went off to nusra and all these repulsive mm. organizations and that's peanuts compared to what turkey saudi and the gulf states and they've poured billions of pounds billions and billions of dollars of money of weaponry i mean jayash al-islam this kind of repulsive group who've been holding guta are Saudi sponsored. They, they were they were the first, one of the first groups. The Saudis rushed in and so you know, party sponsored them, stuffed them with money and weapons. So it's more than it's not even that we've got special forces on the ground because Britain has American. You know, Britain, America, and its allies have been kind of key players in terms of prolonging the civil war. Because if you didn't have if these, it was entirely internationalized. If you didn't have all these hideous groups armed to the teeth uh, and funded, you know, the war would have been over for good or for um, much sooner. It would so, have been far I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I know we said we wouldn't get too much yeah, into but... the actual Syrian war, um, but I can't help but ask the question. You know, what's the end game here? And I think maybe we can discuss this in reference to the growing climate, at least confected in the media and by uh, political elites, of Russophobia. Yeah, it's it's really hard to tell. I mean, so with that, I'm going to have. Sorry, I have to go into the theory because one of the really aston- astonishing things about the strike was that it was totally worked out with Russia. So, so cynical. It, it was totally worked out. So it, the Russian chief of staff, Grasmov, said, you know, if any Russian troops are attacked, we're going to fire back. So everyone was, it was pretty frightening for a few days. Uh, you know, a, a slight, slight rerun of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But then what happened is what was quite clear during the week was was a huge amount of, back channel discussion so basically the Russians all left the areas of mo- you know no, no no Syrians were killed either so this is ex- this is what Mattis called a show strike mm. which is even more despicable no Syrians um, were killed were harmed in the making of this film no yeah. exactly and, and no Russians I can't help yeah. but think that uh, also I mean I don't think the United States and its allies really want to remove Assad properly either no, so that's so that's the weird. So so that's a kind of, you know, it seems to be that they don't want to remove Assad, and they kind of accept that it's over to some extent. So I don't know whether this has the kind of aspect of more like a kind of petulant strike. You know, you did it, you've won. I don't, I don't, I don't really know. But in terms of the end game, it's really hard to. Tell I was re- there's a really interesting article by Dmitry Trenin in Foreign Policy where he's saying it's it is the Cold War and it's kind of not because on the one hand you have this huge amount of back channel negotiations going on not just about the strike but about all sorts of other things between the secret services all this sort of stuff on the other hand what you have is this kind of relentless demonization of the West through sanctions. Uh, you know, now, just today, now Russia's done all this hacking, which is absolutely bog-standard cyber stuff, as there's a good article in Wired about it. You know, it's like mm. literally what every state does. I mean, it's the kind of, you know... Bog-standard cyber stuff. I think that's like probably the yeah. technical term, yeah. <laughs> you can tell I know what... You can tell I really know what I'm talking about. You know, <laughs> the real kind of just... just getting into routers look anyway, I don't know I'm not yeah you have to read you have to read about it but you know so it, it's an entirely this is a complete non-news issue um you know but there, there is kind of relentless pressure and demonization on Russia you know the the scruples but it started sort of way before that three years ago four years ago even with the Sochi games and um, you know, it, it kind of seems to be quite relentless. Yeah, I mean, we've discussed this in relation to sport quite a bit, actually, on previous episodes. But it does seem that kind of Russophobia, or however you want to yeah. term it, is yeah. the kind of only cohering ideology for, for the Atlantic ruling classes. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I, I think it is, a, it, that you know, it's a kind of pale imitation of the, you know, kind of Cold War. But what, but also what's really interesting as well is that it's not quite there either because you have because so for example there's quite a lot of political dissent in other 
European states, for example, like uh, Germany. In Germany, there's a big discussion about how to treat Russia, and lots of politicians, even uh, you know the president, who are explicitly saying, you know, this can't go on. Mm-hmm. We yeah. can't have, you know, this this came out a lot over the Skripal case, for example, where you had like a token expulsion from, you know, actually quite a few states. We've got Macron, who's about to go to Moscow. We've got the day after Germany expelled four diplomats, um, they moved forward on the Nord Stream pipeline thing, which is a big kind of bone of contention with some countries. You know, so so it's, it's kind of quite hard to tell what's going on as well. On the one hand, you have this kind of intense pressure and demonization. And then you look beneath and... There's kind of a lot of business, as usual, going on. But there are, I mean, there are some differences, I think, which are worth, you know, noting. I mean, so I I suppose one thing that's different is, I imagine Western Europe, I mean, I don't know the figures, but off the top of my head, I imagine it'd be safe to say that Western Europe is probably more energy dependent on Russia than it was in the Cold War. Um, And also that business-wise, things are much more integrated economically across East and West than they hadn't been in the Cold War. And so it's probably, you know, those connections probably kind of are um, reflect that. The other things, I think, as well, which which are probably, you know, um, which make the situation in some ways um, more worrying is that with the, the utter... Um, kind of senselessness and thoughtlessness and the lack of any overarching strategy or yeah. aim with Western foreign policy. They, to them. Well, but they, you know, they're basically, they're basically demanding that the Russians be adults, you know, everything. So in terms of not escalating, in terms of not, um, you know, not allowing a crisis to blow out of all proportion, yeah. in terms of not letting the situation really get out of control, they all expect Vladimir Putin to do that, you know. Yeah. So they yeah. they kind of engage in this ridiculous kind of frivolous and pointless airstrikes, which are only tokenistic demonstrations, yeah. military kind of muscle flexing, which they know risks escalation, and then they expect Vladimir Putin to act like the only adult who's supposed to kind of act moderate and restrained in response to the provocation. And yeah. then on the other hand as well, which I think is a dangerous aspect of this, though, is that, you know, what would happen? You know, so what would be, it's very, I think, I mean, the situation, it's much more fragile in some ways than the Cold War because the networks of restraint aren't there. And also, you know, in the Cold War, you would have a gradual kind of escalation. I think the idea was that you have a gradual kind of escalation of conventional military conflict. And the point was that each side had squillions of tanks that they could waste as a kind of long fuse before you ever got to a nuclear exchange, you know. But at this point, there is no kind of military standoff. You know, they don't have the same level of military forces on both sides that they would use as, um, you know, use as kind of way as a deterrence before they get to the actual use of nuclear weapons. And so everything seems to be much more contingent and difficult and um, possibly, you know, much more dangerous in some ways. Okay, so just to sort of round this discussion out, we should maybe bring the war home, um, if you excuse the phrasing, which yes, is, no. uh, <laughs> which is uh, we should discuss anti-war protests. Yeah. As you've already mentioned, 
there is no widespread support for the intervention in Syria. I think one poll I saw, you know, the don't knows and the against intervention vastly, vastly outnumber uh, those explicitly in favor. Um, And yet there doesn't seem to be any big anti-war mobilization. I know Stop the War Coalition uh, held a protest in Westminster a couple of days ago. They mobilized only a few hundred. So why is this? Yeah, I I really don't know. That's an interesting question. I guess it'd be worth, but I I just don't know that much about the organization of the Iraq protests. I mean, I went on the march, but I don't, you know, I just don't really know. And, And I think, I do think one thing is that People don't know how much we are already involved in the war, for example. Mm. And that is quite straightforwardly because the media has a very, very narrow, you know, framework for the, the Syrian conflict. You know, the media just absolutely trots out the kind of government propaganda when it comes to foreign, certain aspects of foreign policy, particularly this kind of thing. So. I think there. I think the. I do think a lot of people just think, oh well, you know, it's a bit of a terrible situation. So I don't know, really. Good question. Like, where are the anti-war movements? Yeah, yeah I don't. I, 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 don't I, have, really... I have. I have. I mean, I think there's two things to say. I mean, I also have a second question, which we might can get back to later. Uh, but I think, in some relation, it seems that uh, the left is quite split in the Syria question. There are a lot of people who. Uh, take it maybe in the side of like being openly pro-Assad and others who uh, take it in the side of like, uh, if they're not su- exactly supportive. Ben, they ben, are... ben, we've got, Ben, we've got an Assadist here. That's what the Times reported. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. An Assad the, the, apologist we're talking the to. The Lion of people. Damascus. Or the symbol of Damascus, <laughs> really the fail of Damascus. Oh my God, so awkward, yeah. yeah. Um, but the lying. Yeah, uh, Damascus. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, but but I mean, on the other side is like people who are say they're on the left, but if they're not for intervention, they're at least not against it in very explicit terms. And I think yeah. that sort of the divides have been quite uh, at least uh, my experience was in the U.S. People were really at each other's throats rather than organizing anything the whole time. Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess that is a, something to think about. I mean, there are lots of people who wouldn't be seen dead at a stop the war rally or wouldn't join stop the war and then also there is a fair number of people on the left or you know who think that they're on the left who think you know who humanitarian intervention and is a great thing Um, i think those those are two things there that you picked up on so stop the war was an swp outfit and occasionally it made forays into more kind of mainstream um consciousness when it happened to capture middle class disillusionment with the Blair regime you know so at that moment it kind of surged forth in great numbers but generally it was an SWP front and the SWP has disintegrated you know over the um, sex and rape scandal that it had so it's you know there is I mean it's what was already a very small and marginal organization is shrunken and even more marginal still Mm -hmm. and I think in fact it was partly it's the leadership of Stop the War were part of the people who split from the SWP over the um, over the scandal and on the other side Tara you know I mean you're absolutely right that there is still a significant tranche of left liberals um, and including very influential opinion formers in the press and um, leading yeah. members of the Labour Party That's who are fanatically like, fanatically yeah. dedicated to war yeah, yeah. Um, you know That's to liberal centrists who yeah. are totally dedicated to war 
Yeah, David Aronovich, number one. <laughs> I mean, he's not really left liberal, come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, but he, well, I think, yeah, God, that's what passes for left liberal in the UK. Um, he is, he is a left liberal. I mean, yeah, exactly. he thinks of himself as a left liberal. Yeah, exactly. Defending liberalism is the point. Exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, think, I, I think do know people in the rest household. I don't think he's mentioned that. Though. Yeah. I do think I know people on the radical left. That was a joke. Yeah, but I do know people on the radical left who have very similar opinions to the sort of centrist establishment. Who uh, I mean, people who really like. I saw a lot of sort of articles coming out saying, uh, sort of reflecting on like, you know, there is a. I mean, I can't oppose the the intervention in Syria, even if I'm not for it. And that's like, but that's something which I think is reflects quite widely, at least in radical left circles that I've encountered in the U.S. But I think that's yeah. book, that speaks to the sort yeah. of like deterioration of having a having like any impact on actual politics. But this, there's also kind of a lot of position taking yeah. on Syria, which is completely um, well meaningless. You know, has no real substance yeah. to it. So you get Stalinists defending Assad, you get Trotskyists defending the rebels, whoever they might be. Um, but it seems to be a, a kind of a desperate position taking rather than based on any kind of strategic analysis or even particularly consistent anti-imperialism. Well, what's more than that, it's not able to actually make any influence in events there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is, we've spoken about this in one of our earliest episodes was the way in which the left vested itself in the Kurds. Um, and so there is an element, a way in which um, just like, I mean, it is the world's battlefield. Not only are the great powers involved, but every kind of political, you know, every kind of political outlook, faction, group, party feels like it needs to attach itself to one faction within the Syrian civil war. And I'm sure that's part of the reason that it continues, that it's so prolonged, so brutal and so violent. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I think, uh, you know, because if you say, hey, this war is a really bad thing and maybe let's not, you know, fund Nusra Front, I don't know, just a suggestion. Of course, people go, (laughs) go crazy and say, oh, you love Assad. Just think, what kind of, you know, madhouse is, am I in? That to say, let's, you know, actually, we've had a big role in the civil war and we've, uh, you know, we've helped it along. How does that equate with saying, oh, well, you must be pro And actually, so what? You know what I mean? Is it If you say better Assad than ISIS, you know, that's a fair point too. Well, Tara, um, more force to you. And I hope that uh, this kind of desperate media attack really back, continues to backfire. Um, and as you, as you said, it shows the media's desperation. So You're, you're all going to be part of it. You're going to be added <laughs> to the kind of, you know, conspiracy. They, the, as we speak, Oliver Cam is going to be like sending off his minions. <laughs> through, through that was your- actually, it was actually part of our plot to try and get more listeners to the <laughs> podcast. I'm so like, you've kind of you've kind of busted us on that one. <laughs> We're open to join all conspiracies going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we do want we do want the Russian money as well, just to make sure that your Russian overlords hear us as well. So please yeah, do send our keys to the Kremlin. Even. <laughs> you, should see my, you should see my house, gold taps and everything, all those rubles. It's <laughs> Superb. Oh, all right, Tara. For money, we're, we're quite we're a low rent version. <laughs> All right, Tara, thanks very much. That was great. Um, And we hope to hear more from you soon. All right, great to talk to you. Thanks. Okay, cheers. Bye-bye.